Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest on today's show is Reggie Yates, a man who you will know from pretty much everything, because Reggie has been a near constant presence on our television screens for more than three decades, ever since he appeared in the sitcom Desmond's back in the early 90s. And it's quite remarkable when you stop to think about it that he's just 39 years old because he's fitted so much in to such a varied career. He's been a presenter, an actor, a radio host, a screenwriter, a director, a documentary filmmaker, the voice, of course, of Rastamouse, perhaps the greatest cartoon character ever invented. But more than this, a sort of spiritual older brother to the nation with the sort of cool, calm, approachable demeanour that means people still come up to him in the street almost every day and tell him they feel like they've known him all their lives. On a wonderfully open and honest episode of the podcast, we spoke about the prospect of turning 40, how for many years Reggie had trouble recognising his own value, how we can all start to work out what we really want to do with our lives, how Reggie gets interview guests and documentary subjects to confide in him, why he gives a copy of Rick Rubin's new book to almost all his friends and his dreams and hopes of fatherhood. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for bearing with us, in fact, over a little winter hiatus in which we've been cooking up some wonderful episodes for the next few months. And thank you to the Fitzdares Club for hosting us for this recording. They put us up in a rather lovely dining room. And I think if you hear some lively background noise, that is the reason. But I think in the industry, that's what they call ambience. So you're welcome. But before we begin, I wanted to very quickly tell you about our exciting new brand partner for the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Luca Filoni, as I'm sure you know, makes some of the finest, loveliest, most timeless and understated menswear garments on the planet. They specialise in fine materials such as cashmere, linen and silk cotton. And it's all made in Italy, all made under the watchful eye of Luca himself, who's been a friend of the Gentleman's Journal for a long time now, pretty much since day one. I personally couldn't recommend their garments enough. And I think at this time of the year, as I look out my window right now, and it can't seem to make up its mind between winter, spring and summer, one of their silk cashmere blends might be exactly what you need. So I thoroughly recommend you go and check them out, whether you see them in the flesh at one of their many handsome stores about the place, or in fact, just go check them out online at lucafaloni.com. Anyway, on with the show. Reggie, thank you very much for joining us today on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I was thinking about how to start this, and I thought I'd do a kind of cheat start, because you're a man who obviously, from the age of eight to now, you specialise really in asking questions of people, whether it's interviewing the Spice Girls when you were a preteen, or going completely out of your comfort zone in your documentaries to um, ask people you never met before difficult questions. So how do you like to start these things when you're doing it you see why this is a cheap question it's good how do you like to open these things uh well you've done exactly what i do which is the pre-record button hitting conversation okay which is informal and kind of softens the person up a little bit right and the minute we started talking about stuff in the lead up to the record button being pressed i was like he's done this before because it's <laughs> it's exactly that like you right. if you don't know who it is you're sitting across yeah. the table from you want to kind of get a feel for their sense of humor their rhythms yeah. and that's generally how i do it have you ever had any 
complete misjudgments where you thought we're getting on really well before the interview. <laughs> then when it's recorded... Well, I mean, you know, when you're interviewing knife-wielding racists in Russia, <laughs> yeah. uh, they generally present as uh, quite nice people until you ask them anything remotely probing about their opinions yeah. or life. Uh, and then you realise, yeah, I'm probably not going to get on with this guy. Okay. Um, See, so yeah, I've definitely been in situations where I'm interviewing people that I wish that I liked because on a human level, they're not bad. But the minute you get into their views or their perspective, they say some shocking and disturbing things. Yeah. I remember watching your one about the kind of extreme men, like anti-feminist men. And some of those people, you can tell when you're talking to them on a personal level, they, they're superficially charming. And actually, there is some natural empathy and connection because you're just two humans. But then the things that come out of their mouth, you're kind of like almost physically taken aback. You're like, how's that coming out of your head when I thought you were like assumed we had some common ground? Yeah. It's I, shocking. The saddest thing about those um, conversations that I had in those documentaries was that because those films were primarily made for BBC Three, I then went on to make stuff for BBC yeah. One and Two, but a large chunk of those films that people remember and refer to were made for a younger audience. So they were made for BBC Three, you know, 16 yeah. to 24s and, and maybe topping out at 30-year-olds. So the people that were at the centre of those films were quite young. And there is nothing more heartbreaking than meeting somebody who is a child of the internet information right. age and has on their phone all of this information that gives them absolutely no right to be ignorant, but they choose to ignore it. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. I want to talk about that stuff later, especially right now with the kind of situation of masculinity that we're, we're all trying to work out. And obviously uh, you've dealt with that a few times, but there's a, there's a quote as well I thought was interesting around questions. You said, I feel confident in saying that if I sat down with George Clooney, I could get him to say something he never said before, which is obviously like the gold dust of all interviewing. Right. Do you have a way of getting things out of people, do you think? And first of all, I hate that quote because it comes up all the time. Yeah. And you know when you say something, you're like... <laughs> Oh, They're going to use that as I the I would title. use that as the pull quote, yeah, 100%. You and you just sort of walk yourself into those situations. But yeah, I wouldn't say that it's a technique. I think it's just being confident enough to be yourself in a conversation with someone and offering up common ground. And I think largely that's why um, my documentaries landed the way that they did, because I would always find a way in that connected me to the issue. And that largely was the reason that we made the films that we made. My connection to the issue placed me in a perfect position to have a perspective. Therefore, when I'm sat in front of someone, there is a commonality or a common ground. And yeah. I feel like with, with any creative, it's very easy to find that common ground because we're essentially trying to get our silly ideas that we were told they were silly for forever. Uh, we're trying to share them with the world and yeah. we all have that same need. In our okay, ways. interesting. Have you had any ideas that uh, people are still telling you are silly? What are the ones that haven't made it out yet? It's funny because I was told when I started writing by someone who was looking after me at the time that I should never, ever write. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were like, stick to what you're making money from, which is being in front of camera. Right. And don't do this thing. And as somebody who mentors people, that's like the worst thing you can do to some yeah. kid with a dream. Because, you know, I was in my early 20s at the time. Um, but me being the sort of person I am and raised the way that I am, it just made me more sort of more sure that I was going to do this thing not prove the person wrong yeah but that I wanted to do this thing for me and I wanted to get better and so I set about doing that but do you still hear no now I mean I imagine you can now make a documentary on pretty much anything you want or do any project you want you're in an enviable point in your career but are people I'm interested are people turning Reggie Hates down going mm. 
Well, the yeah, interesting no. thing is that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a glutton for punishment. Okay. Because I got to a point in entertainment where I could do almost any show, you know, your front and prime time shows, etc. And then I decided to make documentaries and walked yeah. away. I got to the point with documentaries where you're winning awards and things are going really well. And then I said, I actually want to tell stories in a different way as a writer-director and walked away from documentaries. Wow. So today, all I'm doing is working as a writer and director. And it's it's awesome and it's exciting. It's a very weird shift of pace because particularly the writing side of things, you know, you spend a year working on eight things and no one knows. Right. And you're just in your house, in your jogging bottoms, at your laptop working 100%. and then taking these weird Zooms with Americans all the time. Yeah. And then two years later, you're on set and the world knows that you're making this thing. At this point, I've said no to a lot of factual stuff and I've sort of walked away from it because my focus is film. Okay. And I love the fact that I am a total nobody in film, that I'm right. a guy who's made one TV movie and one feature film and I have to sing for my supper. And in fighting to be the person that gets the green light, it's just forcing me to, to work harder and to be better. And as a result, some really cool stuff is... Yeah. We were talking before, we were talking about Rick Rubin, actually, which got us onto the fact that writing of all creative professions is curiously solitary, and it should be more collaborative. For the vast majority of it, you really are on your own, as you say, in your pyjamas at a desk. I imagine that the stuff you've done before, especially TV presenting, very team-based. You are one cog in a big machine. You may be the most famous cog, but you're just one part of it. Yeah. Has that change of pace been difficult to sitting on your own and basically beating your head against the wall trying to get something out? I love it. Really? Yeah, I love the way that work is sort of working for me right now. It's interesting you mentioned the Rick Rubin thing because yeah. this morning I took a delivery of three copies of the book. Okay. He's just written the are you book giving on creative. I have never bought a book so much as a gift okay. in my life. The last book that I bought as much was Raising Boys by Stephen Bidolf. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I have given it to pretty much every friend of mine that's having a kid and Raising Girls and Manhood, like the follow-up books, I've given those Bidolf books to loads of different people. But this creativity book from Rick Rubin, I just hoovered it up in like two weeks yeah. and I'm literally rereading it and I'm on the last chapter again. And just knowing that I'm not the only weirdo that goes through what I go through yeah. as a creative is just such a beautiful gift that he's given us yeah. in this book and I'm sharing it with people that I mentor friends of mine who are actors and directors yeah. and writers even my, my brother who's a costume designer I'm sharing it with him because similarly his process of pitching to get jobs yeah. there's a lot of self-doubt that comes into it so um the process of being alone and working yeah. as a writer is is exciting for me because I have that sort of lucky small print and that is that I have the opportunity to look forward to being on set because I'll direct the work that I write largely. Okay. And that is such a collaborative process. Yeah. Like I've spoken about quite a bit, film being the most creatively fulfilling thing I've ever done because it starts with a kernel of an idea that you you have while you're on a walk or at dinner or whatever, and then it becomes a sentence, then it becomes a paragraph, and then it becomes a page and then you share it and then someone pays you to write the thing if you're lucky enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not always get me getting paid. I've definitely done some things on spec. Of course. But um, to then see it become 100 people on set crazy, working towards this thing that was in your head once, it's just the most fulfilling thing ever. What was the um, spark for Pirates? Was it a song? Was it a pair of trainers? Believe it or not, it was a funeral, oh, which wow. is crazy. Yeah, I don't know if, you, if, you rem if you've seen it or if you remember at the end, it says in love and memory of Neil Governor. 
Reed, and Neil was the manager of my little UK oh. garage crew that I was in when I was a teenager. Great. And the characters in Pirates aren't based on real people. They're like an amalgamation of all the people that I met when I was in that part of my life. And so being at his funeral and being surrounded by the boys who are now men and some are fathers, mm. who I was in this garage crew on a pirate radio station in North London called Freak FM with when I was a yeah. teenager, and talking about going to Iron Apple, talking about being in those record shops and how much fun we had with Neil and just losing him and the grief of that sort of becoming this real celebration of an era that I recognised didn't have any time capsule around it. No one has spoken about that era in the way that we did with Pirates. So that was what launched the idea, really. Amazing. And then the mood board, I guess, there's so much you can pull from, like from the fashion to the, like, the album artwork, the cars in it. I mean... There's almost too much to put in once yeah. you start to peel it back. Well, the, the budget stops you <laughs> yeah, from putting too much in because yeah, yeah. it's a tiny British yeah, yeah. Uh, independent film. So I knew that I could only go so far with yeah. the ideas that I had, even so much as the needle drops. You know, there is a lot of garage classic records in the yeah. movie, but we couldn't afford all of the ones that I wanted, even though they were about three grand a time because our budget was so small. Really? So we had a composer come on who was a producer in the garage era who okay. dug out his old really? synths and all Unused the rest of it. Kind of well, no, he dug he out the equipment it. and made original music for us Great. using the sounds that he was using 20 years ago. That's so, almost better. Yeah, we then had score that was in yeah. keeping with the era. So, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of happy accidents and there has to be when you've got no money to make a film. Yeah, of course. You know? Well, let's go back a bit then to the start. You were, you've been a working actor since you were eight years old. Yeah, yeah. How does something like that happen? How, how did you fall into that? Is it school? Is it a theatre group? Is it your parents? Yeah, I'm, I'm from uh, uh, Holloway in North London. Yeah. And up the road from where I grew up uh, was a community drama group called the Anna Shear Theatre. Yeah. And that sounds way posher than it was. Anna's was a charity and it was a big old hall that a bunch of us used to go to. It was £2.50 a lesson when I started. And it was a place that parents who had kids that had too much to say right. uh, that were f a bit too flash like I was as a kid we got sent and you had somewhere to go and show off okay it just so happens that they had an agency as well and casting directors and producers knew that if you wanted a kid with a London accent go to Anna's because you're going to find someone who's authentic and someone that's rough around the edges in the right ways yeah and that's where I started and I was there for a month and then I got work and I've never stopped working since what got you spotted? Because Desmond's was the first show you were on. It's the first thing I did, yeah. And what, what did they see? Were you just like in a group skit or something? I don't know. What... From what I remember, because again, I'm talking about 30-something years ago, yeah. the audition process was them coming and watching us do a lot of improv. So and as you did a lot of okay. improvisation because, you know, we were little kids from the borough, you know. Yeah, if we yeah. weren't doing that, we'd be playing football in the street. So we weren't going to learn any scripts. No. We were just being asked to make stuff up. And they'd watch these kids, these eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds make up these scenes and have these arguments or conversations. And my thing was always trying to make the teacher laugh. Yeah. So I'd muck about in a way that got a reaction from the crowd and got a reaction from the teacher. And I'd be like, yes, job done. I can go home now. Yeah. And that led to me being sat in front of Humphrey Barkley, I think it was, who okay. made Desmond's. And then, yeah, I ended up on the show. And do you think you're the kind of person who... Had you not been spotted at eight, say the casting director doesn't come in that day yeah. or the day they do, you're not there, you would have made it at 12 or 16 or 30. Do you think that, you know, 
you were just kept pushing at that? Or do you think the early entry was kind of crucial for your success? Yeah, I, I didn't go to Anna's because I wanted to be a star. I went there because my mum wanted to get me out of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She didn't want me playing in the, the football cage on my estate. She just wanted me to do something with the time um, that I had outside of school. So I don't know. Like, I never... As a kid, I didn't, like, say to my mum, I want to be in movies one day. Yeah. I just... I just was a bit flash. <laughs> she was like, all right, I'm going to send you here. Yeah. So you can be with all the other flash. So you were confident, you weren't shy, you were... Mate, I was doing, I watched one Jackie Chan movie and I was doing Kung Fu lessons in my bedroom for 20p a time. I kid you not. Wow. And I remember that before I even got, even thought about radio, I had, my Uncle Felix bought me a little ghetto blaster. Yeah. And my mum had a grey Sony ghetto blaster that she kept above the cooker and it was covered in oil and she used to cook with that plane, right? And I took two of them and I turned one up and like find a song that I liked, turn it down, do a link to no one in my bedroom, and then turn the other one up yeah. on another station and introduce that record. I was doing this on my own in my bedroom. That is adorable. And I don't know why or for what purpose, but yeah. clearly there was something in me that was like, I need a mic that's plugged in. Yeah, yeah. That's genius. <laughs> yeah. And you, I remember in another interview you said that at that age, you know, a few months or years later, you had tens of thousands of pounds in your bank account. Yeah. It's unthinkable, really. Yeah, especially at that Looking time. Back, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot more. Well, particularly, you know, I'm not going to play my tiny violin or anything, but, you know, we, uh, we didn't have a lot. So to be earning money doing something that was fun was wild to me, especially as all of the grown-ups around me hated work. Yeah. No one liked what they did for a living and everyone worked so hard. What kind of jobs were were your elder family members or friends doing? So my granddad was a mathematics professor at Northland University by day. And then by night, he was a security guard in a random wow. factory in King's Cross. So he didn't sleep. Oh, my God. My grandmother, she was a cook for the buses. So she made, like, yeah. food for the bus drivers. My mum was a mature student, and most of my uncles and aunts were cleaners. So that was what I was around. Yeah. Everybody hated work. My mum hated that she had to write this dissertation. Everybody hated what they were doing. And then I was on the set of Desmond's. I've said this a few times before, but it's just so visceral and true that, you know, I'm surrounded by these black actors mm. that all look like my grandparents, look like my aunties and my uncles, but they're at work having the wickedest time yeah. playing Maxi Priest in the flipping makeup room and yeah. having a great time and giving me bold sweets and everybody's having a great time and everyone's getting paid. Yeah, paid It was well. like, yeah, it was... Um, like a really weird, rude awakening at such a young age that it was like, okay, if I do this forever, mm. I can enjoy it and, and enjoy paying my bills. Okay. The cliche about child acting and child performing in general is that it tends to not be a great thing for the kid. And I guess like Macaulay Culkin, who I don't know, he seems okay now, but he was definitely a poster child for going off the rails. And there have been other cases as well. But in your case, it seems to have been a like a broadly positive experience oh but I loved it don't get me wrong I, I, I'm like we're talking about the 80s and 90s yeah. I saw my fair share of things that I wasn't supposed to see yeah but at the same time I'm from a, a Ghanaian background you know like working class West African people they don't play that shit so yeah I'm not misbehaving it's just it's just not even gonna happen right right and also you know uh, because I started this career while I was at school I needed to be signed out by my school. Okay. So if I was misbehaving at school, I couldn't do this thing that I loved. If I was misbehaving at home, I couldn't do this thing that I loved. Yeah. And if I messed up, like, I don't know, drinking or smoking or getting involved in any of the things that my other pals were getting involved in, it would all get taken away from me. 
So I had this thing that I wanted to protect and I did everything that I could to do so. So you've been around kind of successful people, whether it's at Desmond's or throughout your career, even if you're interviewing them, the biggest pop act at the moment, yeah, yeah. but then five minutes later, no one cares about it yeah, at all. Yeah. You've seen that cycle come in the people you've met, the people you've been friends with. What what does that make you feel about the entertainment industry? Like having seen the kind of hype cycle over 30 years and been close to it. It's really sad how much you see the same sort of person attracted yeah. to it. You know, it's like moths to a flame. They just keep coming even though... What kind of person is that? People who... Well, it's people that need applause. Um, there definitely was a part of me that needed applause for a long time. And, you know, I think being much more settled in myself, aligning with me now being behind the camera isn't an accident. You know, I, I just think it's a shame that not many people get enough of a run to not need the applause anymore. Yeah. And yeah, as even as a teenager, you're seeing these pop stars who come single one and they are the big, exciting, hot thing. And by the time the second album comes around and it doesn't really work, they're begging to come on and they're willing to get gunge and do whatever it is. Whereas before, you know, they didn't want to mess up their curtains and their lovely new jeans. So seeing those cycles, seeing people come and go over and over again, because it's about a three to five year cycle in pop in terms of what's happening at that time. It might be Britpop or UK Garage or UK R&B or whatever it is at the time. Seeing that go and come over and over and over again has been fascinating. And it just sort of, it teaches you if you're if you're aware enough from a young age, you recognise that this can all be over right. in no time at all. And I don't know maybe that's why subconsciously I pivot so much and I've done so many different things. Yeah. But for me, it's not been about trying to avoid being fired. It's right. been more about pursuing passion. I heard you say in another interview, it might might have been Stephen Bartlett's actually, that one of the reasons you wanted to do things that were more you, documentaries. That, yeah. That, at the time you were doing a lot of presenting work, was because you'd get 30 seconds to ask Harry Styles about his music video, when the question you wanted to ask is, how the hell are you surviving as a 19-year-old with this insane pressure? But when you, I heard you say that, I kind of thought, well, that's the question I've got for you, because for a lot of us, you've been more ubiquitous on our screens and radio than Harry Styles has for, for, from a very, very young age. Mm. And yet you seem to have come out, I don't know, behind the scenes, as more well-adjusted than I'm a total than mess, bro. People. I'm a mess. I'm really? going to leave here and cry. No, okay. <laughs> no. Thank God I'm on touch. I shouldn't even make that joke. Yeah. My therapist that's, is going to be angry at me. Quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm mess. A total mess. <laughs> I'm going to leave here and cry. Um, okay, my theory on it is because yeah. who knows? Yeah. I, I am by no means a paid medical expert, right. but I have an opinion, and that is that let's get away from Harry and not make it about him and comparing myself to anyone. But I think that for a lot of these pop stars, it happens overnight. Yeah. I've had this slow incremental thing that has happened over 30 years. I've had chances to get it wrong and then figure it out and try and get it right again. And the stakes have got slightly higher every year, but they've never been at the craziest of highs. Yeah. I, arguably my greatest days are ahead of me. You know, I, I, I've not sure. made it to the top of the industry at which I now operate in. And you could argue that I've definitely been at the highs of previous ones. So with it being gradual, I've had no choice but to be humble mm -hmm. because I continue to get humbled. And I have no choice but to be aware of the process. Yeah. Whereas for a lot of these other kids that come and go, it's overnight, especially today with the internet and reality TV and so on and so forth. That's just not my journey. No. You made, a, obviously, a 60-minute 
BBC film about that kind of thing. I did, yeah. famous. Yeah. Which is, it's not just about fame, it's about the peculiar fame we have now, which is social media fame, mm. which is kind of running on a parallel, I don't know, universe almost. How has social media, do you think, changed people's idea of what success is and how you get there? And do you feel kind of lucky that you, as a younger person, just just missed that generation? Yeah. It's weird because I'm, I'm that last generation of people that is young enough slash old enough to remember what it was like pre-smartphones and to feel its omnipresence. Right. Um, I think for me, having that comparison has made me recognise how important it really is. Uh, yes, it can deliver some money in your account every month if you do sponsored posts, etc. Yeah. But at the same time, what are you exchanging it for? I at the moment haven't really used my social media in I don't even know how long last since last year maybe November last year October last year six seven months I haven't used my account because promoting myself isn't a part of what I do now whereas there's an argument to say it had to be a part of what I did before whereas today I want to go missing I want to disappear and it's really interesting having younger siblings you know I've got um four sisters and two brothers and there's a lot of us and they think social media is a bit embarrassing, particularly my younger siblings. Really? How old are they? Um, oh, now you're challenging me. There's a lot of them. Um, well, they're in their 20s, but yeah. I've got my youngest sibling. He's just in his, he just turned 21. So proper Gen Z. Yeah. And they're like, ugh, no, I don't... No. Like, no one cares about what I'm eating. Yeah. No one cares about this pair of shoes I just bought. That's refreshing. It's great. And it yeah. just sort of makes you go, oh, yeah. Like, it is yeah. weird that you're telling everyone what was in your salad. Bizarre. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And for me, I, I don't know, it's a promotional tool and it's something that helps to shout about the products, projects that I'm making. Outside of that, I just really don't have any interest in it. No. Do young people come to you for advice a lot? Do you find yourself being approached on the street or via email or? Yeah, social media was a big part of those yeah. approaches because that was a direct line to me, but yeah, there isn't a week that goes by that someone doesn't stop me and ask for an email or... What kind of questions are they asking? What do they want to know? Um, Because it's been such... I have this really weird relationship with my audience and that is because I've been around for so long. And if you're in your mid to late 20s, you've grown up with me on telly. You might not have watched my stuff, but you've been aware of me in in one lane or another as the voice of Rasta Mouse or hosting Top of the Pops or the voice... Whatever it is, Doctor, whatever it is. I've crossed your path. So sometimes someone will stop me and ask me about documentaries or radio or writing or directing or acting or like any of the things that I've done, which is cool because you can have this informed conversation with a person or get their email and give them some advice at a bit of distance. And it was something that I rejected for a long time because I didn't like the idea of being considered a role model. But in realising that that's out of my control and I have no choice about how people see me, it's changed my relationship with it, which led to a lot of mentoring and working with okay. talent that I am so proud of that yeah. flourished in front of me, really. And what about the people who you can't, you aren't working with on a project who are just like, I don't know, lost or going through terrible things or maybe just the average things of youth and life? I don't know. It must be very hard if you're getting those DMs not to respond personally or mm. or you've got to be so careful in your advice because you don't know the person. yeah. yeah. It must, must be a way to... Dude, documentaries taught me so much about being boundaried. Like, uh, the mistake that I made when I first started making documentaries was trying to be everyone's mate. Right. And 
at the end of the film where you want to walk away, they're like, no, you're my friend now, aren't you? Do As in keep... the subject? Absolutely. Yeah. So the person, the contributor, the person that is on camera, I thought to begin with that I needed to bring them close in every way, shape and form during the process. And I didn't really consider what happened when we wrapped. And then suddenly you've got this responsibility for someone who you're not equipped to be responsible for. So the boundaries that I put in place in that context have really helped me elsewhere. Like if I get stopped on the street by someone and I genuinely don't have time to talk to them, I'll tell them and I'll, I'll say, look, That's contact me. That's not easy me. though, is it? It's Especially not, not when you, you seem so naturally friendly yeah. and, and you want and to connect. It's how you do it. You know, if you say to someone, I am really sorry, but I can't do this with you right now. Yeah. If you shout me on Instagram, I'll try my best to get back to you. Okay. But I, I just can't right now. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for watching. Any balanced human being is going to go, oh, okay, fair enough. If they respond in the other way, which I'm fortunate enough to not have had yet, that comes from a place that I can't make any, oh, no. any allowances for, really. Does it take a personal toll on you day to day? Not anymore. No. It used to. It used to. I, I used to really worry massively about what people thought of me yeah. and also uh, letting people down. But so long as you're doing the best that you can, that's all you can do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, my mantra is if you can be polite in those situations and try and explain yeah. the situation as best you can, it's on them to take it or not. Of course, yeah. There's not much more you can do. Otherwise, you'll just be walking around with the responsibility <laughs> of other people's opinions everywhere you go. Like, yeah. you have to be thick-skinned doing what I do. Yeah. Are there a lot of young men who speak to you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's lovely, particularly, like, even just on the walk up, there was a, a woman who worked here who was just really lovely about pirates. And what I feel is quite unique about my relationship with my quote-unquote audience is that there is this weird connection because it's been so many years yeah. that I've been in their lives. And the way in which I've been in their lives, if they were a kid watching me in cereal in their PJs, I was talking directly to them. If it was a podcast that they listened to, I was in their ears. Yeah. If it was a documentary, I was in their front rooms talking about difficult stuff. And if it were pirates and, you know, specifically if the specifics of that world speak to your experience, yeah. I'm saying something to you in a way that no one else in film has ever done before. And that sounds like quite a lofty thing to say, but yeah, show me another film that's done that for a black British person yeah. from that era. So... To be stopped by people with their kids in the street and saying, I can't believe that you got Probito in Pirates, bro. Like, I used to go there every Saturday. You just kind of go, you get it. Thank you. Yes. Um, and there is something really beautiful in, in making something that has specifics, but at the same time has universal themes so it can talk to as many people as possible. Yeah, yeah. I'm always wary of asking questions about the crisis in masculinity because I think that title alone is difficult and misleading yeah, yeah. because if you're a young boy who actually feels okay and fine in life mm. beyond the, the everyday troubles you think oh maybe there is something wrong with me and it becomes this whole difficult thing and I think it's a very interesting time to be kind of doing anything in the men's space we do a men's lifestyle magazine but we've had to change the way we talk about all sorts of things do you think there's like a a kind of lack of male leadership in this country that allows people like, I don't know, Andrew Tate on the more extreme side mm. to thrive? Is that something you think is fair? I think it's much more personal than that. I, right. I, I'm very much from the school of um, taking responsibility for my own actions as opposed to needing leadership to decide how I see myself right. and how I navigate the world. I'm the product of a lot of mentors. I've spoken quite a few times about having bits of dad 
I didn't grow up with dad in the home, but I found bits of dad through the information that mum gave me and what a good man looks like. And as a result, I don't really seek leadership from unhealthy sources. And I will always sort of stand by that, that it's entirely personal. Yeah. I think if you're easily led, that's on you and your, your situation. For me and the people that I'm surrounded by, none of us are led by the status quo. None of us. What do you mean by that? They're not people... Most of the people you're friends with seem to do what they want to do, don't go with the flow, they operate independently? Or Yeah, well, it's independent thought, isn't it? It's, um, it's educating yourself emotionally, spiritually, in the best ways you can, and just striving to be the best human that you can. It sounds really over-the-top and dramatic, but isn't that what it all boils down to? Just being courteous and being a good human? That's essentially what the people that I care about prioritise, and as a result, I'd like to think that I'm surrounded by people who have a healthy life and a balanced life and are good human beings. And that's yeah. ultimately all I'm striving to be. And I'm getting it wrong sometimes, but I'm definitely in a, in a better place than I was yeah. last year. And in your various kind of career moves, which we've spoken about, yeah, um, it seems to me what you're saying is that you've just done things that were more you at that moment or you felt were more you in general. And yeah. you were listening to what you really wanted in life. That takes time, obviously. But when I speak to a lot of people, my friends who maybe aren't in creative fields but feel like they should be or really frustrated in their jobs yeah. or feel like they're going nowhere, the thing they say is, I don't know what I want to do. If I knew what I wanted to do or I knew even who I was or even what I liked, yeah. like I've just been liking the same things as everyone else, but do I actually like yeah. that? Like that to me, I think, is is the first step that a lot of people miss out on that self-discovery journey. Yeah. Why do you think you've been more able to tap into it? And and do you have advice for people who are sitting here? They're working a job in finance, but they feel like they're a frustrated painter. Yeah. What do they do? Um, first of all, I am not the fountain of knowledge by no, any of means. Course, of course. This is definitely just a, a personal <laughs> uh, sort of experiential answer. And that is I've always leaned into the things that I do for free. Like yeah. when I ask myself, like how over the course of a six month period, how much energy have I put into things that nobody is paying me to do, that nobody is cheering yeah. me on in? Like those are the things that maybe I should be thinking more about and finding a way to make them make money for me. Yeah. So uh, be that writing or my fascination with factual filmmaking and what that then led to, or even just writing a book or, you know, writing my first short film, which then led to what I'm doing now. All of these things started out as me going, I want to do this for me and I'm not doing it to appease anyone or working yeah. to a mandate or in keeping with what's hot right now. This is just the thing that I love. And that I think has led me to, I need to stop doing X because this is the thing that I really want to do now. Do you ever regret those changes and decisions? Do you ever look back? No? My accountant does. <laughs> there have been moments where I definitely have seen some big checks in the rear view <laughs> that uh, are no longer accessible to me because I've decided to do something that speaks to what I care about more. Kind of mainstream pre presenting. Yeah, entertainment pays very well. In, in, like, in TV, entertainment is the top of the tree. You earn really good money, you don't have to do as much, you don't even write your script. You just turn up, you read the autocue, you look great, and you finish on time. That's it, you know, just hit the zero yeah. and say goodnight. Documentaries are so much more work there is no script. Yeah. You're ultimately, particularly in the way that I made the films, like immersive films, for instance, you are the story. Your experience, the way in which you deal with challenge and the way in which you deal with a situation, how you ask a question, 
that hasn't been written for you, by the way. Yeah. They're all the things that make the show good or not. They determine whether or not you get another commission. And I got so comfortable in Factual that I was on ro a rolling commission where films were being greenlit before we'd even come up with the idea properly. Yeah, yeah. So I could have just rode that train, similarly with entertainment. I could have rode the train until yeah. the wheels fell off. But that, for me, isn't the healthiest form of creative expression. No. I think when you get to a point where you're just like, okay, on to the next thing. We're not stopping and living and figuring out what it is we want to say, figuring out what it is we want to ask, what kind of conversations we want to put out into the world. Yeah. That is what filmmaking is for me today. To go back to documentaries for one more question. Mm. With, um, I'm interested in that idea that there is no script in those things. Yeah. When we see the finished hour or an hour and a half or whatever, it, how many blind avenues have you gone down to get there? Have there ever been things that you thought, this is going to be our killer interview, and then it happens and it's a dud or it's not yeah. what you thought? How much are we not seeing that just goes wrong? All the time. Yeah. The way that we ended up making films, again, because it didn't start with a really well-old machine. Yeah. It started with some duds, me making films with filmmakers who I won't even mention, uh, and me having processes that I didn't enjoy. It then became this process of trial and error, me finding a producer that I really liked, finding a director that I really got on with, and now I'm godfather to his kid. He's one of my best friends. Love him to death. Yeah. Uh, and we went around the world together and made these films where the process was we put in place these pillars of story. Yeah. And by that, I mean, we would have a researcher find different contributors that spoke to a different point that we wanted to tell at different moments in the film. Yeah. So you've got contributor one, two, three, four, you know that you've got those interviews locked, but during the experience, during the trajectory, you may meet someone on the off chance in the restaurant. Yeah and you interview them and they lead you down another route and you figure it out in the edit. And the lovely thing about that was that a lot of the films that we pitched ended up being very different to the film that we delivered right. for, for the better of it. And that process of storytelling really got me going in terms of what would this be like if you could actually write the thing as opposed to discover it. Right. Uh, and I learned so much about telling stories, about structure and about how to use light and shade to keep an audience on side. That structure work done by amazing editors and great producers and directors really gave me lessons in yeah. filmmaking. And when it comes to screenwriting or, or writing anything, there's two types of writers we're told. They've got names which I can't remember. But ones who plan it out meticulously and have the, the basically every beat and the end completely in mind, or ones who start with the idea the writing is the discovery process, and that's when they learn. Yeah. Which one of you? I'm in the middle. Right. Um, I definitely lean uh, to the architect element of is it. Is that okay? I don't architect. know if that's the term, but that it just good. makes sense. Uh, let's pretend it is. Yes. Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I lean toward that version of uh, of of creation yeah. where you know what you're writing before you sit down at a laptop. Like for me, I love looking forward to the actual writing of it, and I love the process of getting there and knowing that when I sit at my laptop, I know exactly what I'm going to do today. But I'm also, and this is where the other part comes in, open to the idea of being surprised. Yeah. One of the things that I find easiest to write is dialogue because really? I've got a gob on me. Okay. So getting in the head of two different characters is something I can do. Do you talk out loud? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, no, if I'm in a public place, can get a bit weird. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, if I'm at home, I'll definitely like act it out. And that can then just lead you into a, a new place where you're like, oh my God, why did she say that? Yeah. Ooh, 
oh, that's interesting. And then you sit back and then you might change the third act just because of something that surprised you in a back and forth between two characters that you've made up. It's all very schizophrenic, okay. but it's, it's the most fun process ever. But working out what the arc is, working out what the story is, what it is, knowing what you're trying to say thematically keeps the projects on track in the right way. Yeah. And how you navigate that conversation is where things can ebb and flow during the process. Okay. With something like Pirates, this may be reductive, but what is the like the one-line emotional pitch? Not, not what happens, mm. but what is it about, is what I'm trying to say. The, the last you. line of the film is, we're not stuck here, we're from here. That's the last line of the film. Okay. And yeah. I guess that's that. You know, it's three young guys in London crossing the bridge yeah. to go to a party on New Year's Eve in 1999 and UK Garage is the backdrop. It's silly, it's fun, it's light, it's a very easy watch. There is no big bad, there is no scary drug lord or any of that nonsense that you see in films that star people that look like me usually, yeah. uh, particularly from the UK lens. But it's centred on joy and it's so much more about this idea of hope than we're used to seeing. And for me, we're not stuck here, we're, we're from here, is the film. Do you think all your projects need to have some kind of, even if it's very loose, but autobiographical feeling? Could you write something about 16th century Paris? I don't know. Yes, in short, um, yeah. there's... The weirdest thing about being a writer is that, particularly after spending about a year in Los Angeles, yeah. is that you get asked to do things called punch-ups which I find okay. hilarious, where you'll come into a massive movie that's being made for hundreds of millions of dollars that's already shot or about to be shot, it's in pre-production, depending on whether it's animation or live action, and you rewrite scenes or you're given a character and you rewrite their entire arc. And I've done that on different movies. And it's fascinating to be in that process where you literally come in to work on a character that's been created by someone else in a world yeah. that is created completely different to the world. dropped in, Paris dropped in. Yeah. But because you have a particular voice or a sense of humour or an ability to speak from that perspective, you end up surprising yourself in terms of the sorts of stories that you tell. And this last year, I've worked on so many things. Really? Different writers' rooms, in especially? Um, I'm not a fan of writers' rooms. Okay. That's um, very American, that way. It is, yeah. yeah, like 10 people around the table, yeah. all sort Quite of... Quite competitive, arc. almost. Yeah, and the showrunner being the person that decides who's yeah. got the funniest idea. Like, that's not really my way of working, but I love being brought in by an amazing filmmaker who I can learn from, and them asking me to rewrite a particular character for the entire movie. So you wow. might get 40 pages of different scenes and you just write that, that character's scene. So you right. can write, rewrite their arc with a more consistent voice. Like that's really good fun. Obviously the most fun is writing your own thing and, and coming up with something from scratch, but you learn so much in those scenarios and also you end up doing things in all different walks of life and yeah. different kinds of characters. We spoke about Rick Rubin earlier. He's mm. clearly on my mind, but I'm really- It's an amazing book. Yeah, it really, really is. And I've been listening to every podcast he's done promoting it, yeah. which gives different shades of, it's kind of similar arguments. But the thing that's kind of stuck with me is this idea of creative mentorship, which is obviously never just creative mentorship. <laughs> it's really like therapy and kind of almost like shamanistic, getting this story out of you. It's like, especially him, because he's so into meditation and all that kind of stuff. So do you have creative mentors who you, when you're stuck, you speak to? And then when do you help other people who are also stuck? And how do you do that bit? It's weird. So I, I have a lot of mentors, but not creatively, really. Right. So I don't go to people when I'm stuck. I go to people to rip what I've written apart. 
Wow. And that's been incredibly helpful, having people who are so much smarter than me look at something I've written and go, that's bollocks, I don't believe that, that doesn't check out, that doesn't work well with that, da 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 da, da. That's been incredibly helpful. On the flip side, being able to guide someone creatively or help them or, you know, help fix a problem with their script or something like that, that's been really beautiful to be able to do. Yeah. Do you have a kind of set template for that? Do you, mm. I don't know, if someone comes to you, some people just ask a lot of questions. They don't say any opinion. Right, right, They go, right. what, do you, what do you think the problem is? Yeah, that's, some that's, people, that's the therapist. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> some people come right in and go, you need to go to the Bahamas for two weeks and never look at this again. Where, I don't know. Yeah, that's just not my way. I think, weirdly, it's very much in keeping with who I am as a human being yeah. and who I am as a big brother and as an uncle or a godfather or whatever it is. I just never will tell someone what to do okay i will offer my opinion and i will give them an objective take on a thing yeah. and i'll also challenge them to look at things in different ways and leave them with those thoughts <laughs> and right. see where they end up yeah. and so long as the person in question feels as though they've been heard and that they are now looking at their problem in a new way i feel like job done yeah okay how long do you think you'll be interested in screenwriting. Do you think that's now forever? Or do you think this is a phase for five, 10 years? How does it work? It's such an art form that requires time. That as a 40 year old, which I turned this summer, yeah. I'm only just coming into my prime of life, of really. And my experiences are elevating what it is I have to say. So I'm only really just getting started. And it's so exciting having mentors who are men and women in their 50s and 60s who have just got so much still to say, even yeah. though they've done incredible work up until this point. So I feel like this is me for the foreseeable, yeah. but I'm not stupid enough to say what's going to happen because God always has other plans. That's the nice thing about writing, I think, that as long as you've got your mental faculties fingers crossed yeah you could just hopefully just gonna get better and better um, a mate of mine said to me today that creative people have their faculties yeah. for longer than uh sure. than than your average nine to fiver because the mental gymnastics we do yeah to make the nothing something on a regular basis yeah it just keeps your mind sharp so i'd love to be in my 80s going, ah, how do I tell this story? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm looking forward to I'm that. I'm sure day. you will be. <laughs> it's amazing to me in some ways that you're 39, Reggie. It's 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 kind of mind-boggling because, you. I mean, a 30-year career, most people, if they're lucky, start at 18. Right. So you should be approaching 50 right now, but you're not. Yeah. Well, do you feel 50. older than you are? <laughs> That's do. my question. I do. Do you feel older? Well, largely because I, I, I pulled something yesterday when I was dead okay. doing a deadlift. <laughs> so that's part of it. Like, I'm yeah. getting out of the chair slower okay. today. But um, I do feel older just largely because of how many different careers, yeah. how many different lives I've had creatively, how many different things I've seen, how many challenges I've faced. But also because I feel like I'm at the beginning of a whole new career as well, but having this huge life prior to it, Correct. it just sort of makes you, I don't know, really thankful for your experiences, but also very aware of how many you've had up until this point. So, yeah, I don't feel the age that I am. I feel a lot older. And I'm just glad that it's, uh, you know, I haven't got a, a wispy grey beard to yeah. go with it. <laughs> what does that, that milestone mean to you, 40? Is that daunting? It's exciting. Yeah. Uh, one of my closest friends, actually, a director as well, actually, his name's Yemi Bamiro. He makes documentaries. He used to produce my short films. Okay. Uh, he's amazing. If you haven't seen any of his work, 
I don't know if you're a football fan, but he yeah. made uh, this amazing documentary called Super Eagles 96 about okay, the Nigerian football team that won gold in 96 at the USA Olympics. Yeah. I think it's on iPlayer now. Yem's an amazing director, but he and I and a few other friends, we did a double feature night where we went and saw two movies with a dinner in between. Yeah, <laughs> me and my boys, uh, we call ourselves the aunties, but that's another conversation <laughs> together. But we're, we're sat down at Bao having this meal and just talking about what it means to be at this age where there isn't a finish line, there isn't a marker, but there is a definite seismic shift that is happening right. where you recognise the distance between you and a young person because you're not the young person anymore. You're definitely not the youngest person on set. You're not the youngest person in the room, which I have been for so many parts of, of my career. But when you talk to somebody who's 10, 15, 20 years younger than you, you can feel their inexperience, you can feel their naivety, and you can also think up 20 experiences that you've had, just like the one they're going through for the first time. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you go, oh crap, I'm, I'm an old geezer. <laughs> I've been around a while. Accepting that, enjoying it, and, 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 and yeah. being proud that you've been through those things and survived yeah. is a huge part of me actually enjoying this bit. I, I must feel like a relief when you think- <laughs> That I survived it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you survived it. But when I look at, I've got nieces and nephews who are just approaching their teenage years and I just look at them and I feel exhausted. I'm like, oh, you've, you've got all these emotions about to hit you. I'm so glad I don't have to go through that again. But you've got that and, and a professional kind of crazy career. It must be like, oh, thank, yeah, a relief in a way. Do you know what's really lovely? Like having lots of young actors around you yeah. who you're close to, like the boys in, from Pirates are like my little brothers now yeah. and... I speak to them every couple of days still, you know, that film was years ago now. And it's just really lovely knowing that people come to you knowing that you're not going to judge them, but you're also going to help guide them. Like I, I had a really lovely thing the other day, which was, and it might be, this might be a bit saccharine for you, no. but um, I loved it. And it was so sweet because it, I said it to a friend, another friend, they got quite emotional and it was that um, you are exactly the sort of person that you would have felt safe with as a kid. Wow, that is nice. And it's just made me go, oh shit, yeah, maybe I am. Yeah. And I think that with a lot of these kids that I mentor or people that I work with that become a part of my life, yeah. they feel safe around me. And that is testament to the journey. Yeah. Are you as kind to yourself as you are to other people? I never advice? used to be. Right. I never used to be. I am much now, much more now. Um, I've got a great therapist. I have a much kinder internal voice today. Right. What was it like at its worst? I didn't know my shadow, which is a phrase that my therapist will smile at hearing me say. <laughs> so one of his big junctures for me was getting to know your shadow. What does that mean? It's this idea of knowing the worst parts of yourself, okay. the bits that you hide from, and being comfortable with them to a point where you know them intimately so they don't scare you when they arise anymore. But also you then have the cheat code to send them packing. That getting to know your shadow thing has helped me right. no end. And at my worst, oh, the shadow could just take over. Really? And just, yeah, swarm me. As in really negative thoughts to yourself, like unpleasant things saying to yourself? Or All sorts, yeah. yeah. Um, unpleasant thoughts, but also not recognising my value right. in every way imaginable. But coming on the other side of that and sort of understanding yeah. where you are and more importantly the journey you've been on it's just yeah it's a really beautiful place to be okay good mm. yeah i look forward to getting there <laughs> um, i asked you at the start of this about that george clooney quote which which has yeah. been following you around i wonder sitting there mm. another cheat question here what thing 
do you think I could have made you confide in if I hadn't? And by the way, this is trying to get you to confide in it. What? What? Because often I listen back to these. The reason I ask it is because you listen back, and when you're in the moment, you can't see the part B to the question, which would have unlocked something amazing. You go, oh, that was such an open goal. I should have just asked him about yeah. X or Y. Yeah. And you don't. And then you think, if only I could go back. Have I missed any um, junctures here, which would have led us somewhere interesting? Possibly. But you've got to listen back, I suppose. Possibly. I've, I've really enjoyed the chat. Okay. Um, but if I think about it, this is a really weird sort of workshop. meta question. Meta question. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so here's one. When we spoke about me being a child actor. Right. And then in the latter part of the conversation when we spoke, this is really weird. In the latter part of the conversation, I feel like I'm producing you afterwards. In the latter part of the conversation when we spoke about uh, being at 40, I would think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about fatherhood and about parenting and about bringing a child into the world that could potentially have a career and whether or not I would encourage them to be in entertainment or to express themselves in the way that I was encouraged to. And also, would I be heartbroken if my kid didn't want to have anything to do with the business? Yeah. They're things that I've never really spoken about. That's a great question. Is it a cheat now to ask you part part of that question? <laughs> is it, it? I guess the 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 softer way to ask that is: Is that something you think about more and more as you get to forty? As a single man, absolutely. Yeah. I have four sisters, but I also have a lot of female friends, yeah. and I'm just very aware of how difficult it is for my single female friends who want a family at this point in life right. to sort of have a career, but at the same time be actively trying to find a partner because of, of the, the, the clock that is hanging over their head. Yeah. That, for me, I'm, I feel for them so much because just as a guy, biologically, it's just not a concern for us. But at the same time, nobody wants to be the dad that can't run after their kid. Yeah. So to be at this age and to be at the start point of a new career, yeah. knowing what is required in terms of time, energy and focus, but at the same time, not wanting to be 55, having my first child, right? you kind of go, well, what's the middle ground here? What is the work-life balance? I don't have the answer, but I'm genuinely trying to figure it out. Of course. When you picture yourself in the future, and you may not look too far ahead, when you see yourself as Reggie at 70, 80, mm-hmm. do you see yourself surrounded by your children? Do you imagine Absolutely. that you've got grown-up children? Absolutely. Is that like a big part of your dream? Because some people, it's actually not that, yeah. they're kind of, they think they should, but they, they're not that interested. Yeah, dude, I'm from a large family, man. Yeah. And um, I think that there is some sort of karmic loops that need to be closed by creating the, the family that um, I've always dreamed of. So that's a huge part of where I think my emotional journey is going. So I, I can only do so much because the relationship's more than just the one person. So of course. we'll see what happens. But it's certainly something that is of importance. I'd say of greater importance than my professional life, okay. for sure. Yeah. And is it one of those things where searching for it too hard stops you finding it, in a way? That's some of the advice I've been given. And the other advice is, you know, it depends who you speak to and you have to figure sort through it because some people are like, you need a schedule, you need to be strict, you need to be on the apps, you need to be asking everyone for their opinion. And some people are like, just relax, man, chill yeah. out, man. Let it happen, baby. Have you been on apps? Um, I plead the fifth of that. No, okay, I, good, I, good. I've done one. Okay. And I don't know if, if it's for me. No. It must be odder 
being on an app when you have a public face anyway. Yeah, it's weird. It's yeah. just weird in that sense anyway. Dating when you uh, do have a profile of sorts. I'm not Brad Pitt, for God's sakes. You know, I'm not getting screamed at running down the street. But some people have uh, an opinion of who you might be before yeah. they meet you. So that can make things difficult. Of course, yeah. And there's the just more mundane things of like going to a restaurant and more you're going to be pictured with a girl. And even if it's a girl you're very casual with, everyone's suddenly saying... Reggie Yates spotted out. <laughs> if the papers cared, okay. you, you'd know way more about my private life <laughs> than you currently do. Okay. They don't give a damn when well, it comes to me. I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So this is a this is a complete tone shift, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But I'm really we're very lucky to have you here, obviously, because uh, your collaboration with Barbara International, yeah. which is I think interesting because when I saw the kind of mood video about it, mm. it is very important to what we've been talking about. It's all about your kind of personal taste and knowing your taste and being able to express that mm. and fashion for you as we spoke about before used to be a big sneakerhead <laughs> is obviously a big big part of that mm. what what's it like to put together a help on a fashion collab like this and how is that kind of i don't know expressing reggie well it's it's interesting isn't it because when you have spent your teens on screen all of those horrendous mistakes are there for the world to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the bad haircuts, the terrible <laughs> moustache, the awful sartorial choices on top of the pops over and over really? again. What was your there. what was your kind of when you cringe most at it, what was the worst look? My first episode of Top of the Pops, I yeah. wore a brown corduroy suit. Nice. And I <laughs> interviewed Sting. So Sting was on. And I was this 18-year-old with braids and yeah. a unbalanced moustache because I, I refused to let the barber touch it I did it with like a razor like a, a big wow. razor and it was all over the shop and I was this idiot teenager asking this icon questions in this terrible suit <laughs> I just sort of think what must he thought of me yeah. just thought, what has happened to this show why are they letting this idiot on all of that those terrible choices yeah. and that progression is, is is out there for people to see but it is really lovely to get to a place where you feel comfortable in who you are and what you wear. Right. And that I think is a large reason as to why this made sense for me because they are a brand that are about classics yeah. and about staples and about owning things for a lifetime. And I'm very much that sort of person. Yeah, I'm not a trend guy. I definitely have been. I'm much more somebody that has things that I feel comfortable wearing and yeah. I, I wear them, you know? And do you have kind of style influences in your life or I don't know characters or something I think about yeah the 90s look and some of those kind of yeah people that <laughs> just had such distinct looks which maybe we don't have as much the 90s particularly now maybe it's a bit of distance seem like a colorful time and style who are your influences there's not many really for me it's more 70s for me than anything really? I love the 70s always have done I love yeah. the shapes for me it's the past Right. Like there's so much stuff from the past that I draw from that okay. I love. But yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, that for me, classics is, is the way to go. One last question then. Mm. I spoke, I've been speaking about questions throughout this and obviously as someone who interviews people, that's really interesting to me. The, the kind of basic question when you first start interviewing people is what advice would you give your younger self? But I want to flip that on you mm. and say, what would your eight-year-old Reggie going on set at Desmond's ask 39-year-old Reggie? That is a question today? no one's ever asked me before. That's a good that's a really good question. What would what you, do you ask? want to know? Is it going to get any bigger? No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what would he ask? He'd, he'd ask, is it always going to be this fun? I think would be the question. 
And the answer would be no. It's going to be better and worse than anything you've ever imagined. Yeah. Reggie, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank this you. has been a joy. Yeah, no, incredible. Really enjoyed that. Thank you Love so it. much. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.